Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Hey, welcome everybody. All right, we're going to be talking about hate crimes and uh, the psychopaths among us. And, you know, in this day and age where our society is just, at least from a political standpoint, completely at war with each other, um, it's pretty amazing what, what's taking place because the, the killings, uh, the mass killings have taken, uh, I believe, if I watched it on the news, I think it, they said in the last 230 days there have been 254 hate crime killings. And, uh, you know, these people have been latent for a long time. And now that they have the social uh, kind of endorsement to go ahead and kill police officers, kill people, I mean, they, they feel that hate that's out there and they feed on it. And these psychopaths uh, have it in them to kill. And so naturally, if they find a reason to kill or a purpose to kill, that's just adding more fuel to the fire. And psychopaths are always looking for fuel. And uh, and when they get it and they get, some, you know, the media out there pushing that it's okay, you know, to uh, kill a cop, uh, they're going to do it. They'll, they will eventually do it as they convince themselves that society will make them a hero. You know, what are the effects of hate crimes? And, and people that are victimized by violent hate crimes are, are more likely to experience more psychological distress than victims of other violent crimes, specifically victims of crimes that are uh, bias-motivated and are more likely to experience uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They, they're likely to have safety concerns, depression, anxiety, anger, that victims of crimes are not uh, motivated by bias. You know, the problem is when you've been biased, when you've been prejudiced against and then a violent act has taken place towards you uh, due to that label, uh, you're going to be afraid of people coming out of the woodwork all over the place all the time. And so these people have a very pervasive fear of uh, uh, being targeted once they have been targeted for the rest of their lives. And, and so that is a very troubling affect that this hate crimes cause. And, and they send a lot of messages, hate crimes, uh, to members of the victim's group that they're unwelcome and that they're unsafe in a community and victimizing the entire group and decreasing feelings of safety and security therefore takes place. Furthermore, you know, witnessing discrimination against a person's own group can lead to psychological distress and very low self-esteem. So, you know, what leads to these hate crimes? Well, they are extreme form of prejudice and they're made more likely in the context of social and political change. And so public and political discourse, especially political discourse these days, may be uh, devalue members of unfamiliar groups and offenders may feel that their uh, livelihood or way of life is threatened by demogra uh, demographic changes. So offenders may not be motivated by hate, but rather by fear, ignorance, anger. And this can also lead to dehumanization of unfamiliar groups and targeted aggression. And so, you know, as we look at 
uh, these hate crimes. We're also going to go later on in the show into the profile of the psychopaths and kind of get to know what, identify their characteristics because they're very, uh, they have a lot of uh, similarities. And, And so what we have to do is try to understand who among us is has the potential to do this kind of stuff. Um, you know, how prevalent are hate crimes? Well, just according to the uh, FBI, uh, and this is back in 2017, 7,145 hate crimes were in 2017. The majority of hate crimes were never reported. So the, the data basically is an underestimate of the true pervasiveness of of hate crimes. Reported hate crimes were motivated primarily, this is according to the FBI, based on race, ethnicity at 58.1%, by religion at 22%, sexual orientation by 15.9%, gender identity by 0.6%, disability 1.6%. So hate crimes targeted uh, Jewish, African American, and LGBT communities at very high rates. And so what what is it that spurs these offenders into action? It, it's rarely uh, one thing alone. It's, it's usually a toxic mix of emotions from anger to fear to indignation. And also, you know, the FBI says that hate itself is not a crime. Instead, bias is considered the added element to offenses like murder, arson, vandalism, leading to, uh, uh, at times, to longer prison sentences. So, so if you think about it, the public uh, and prosecutors will often disagree on what constitutes a hate crime because it's kind of ambiguous. And so uh, Muslims and transgender people often see an assault on one of them as an attack on the entire community, especially in this era of intense uh, rancor and fear. You know, between uh, that that last election uh, in November to February, uh, the poverty uh, Southern uh, Poverty Law Center counted more than 1,300 hate incidents across the country. So that's when Trump was elected uh, up into February. That's just a three-month period. So, you know, there's four types generally of hate crimes, and this is from a law enforcement perspective. Along, uh, you know, these are often taught in the FBI training manual, by the way. The first one is thrill-seeking. Now, these folks... Uh, hate crimes are often driven by an immature itch for excitement and uh, drama. So they oftentimes just love uh, to have that element of surprise. They, they, they want, they're like bullies. They, they want to see what your reaction is. And so, you know, if you're going to give them a reaction, they're bored and, and they're drunk or, you know, through neighborhoods creating mayhem or whatever. They're really looking for a reaction. And it's usually of fear because that makes them feel powerful. You know, often there's no real reason for thrill-seeking crimes. They're committed to uh, the thrill of it, and the victims are vulnerable simply because their sexual, racial, ethnic, gender, religious background differs from that of their attackers. And I do say attackers because many times thrill-seekers are doing it in packs. They're doing it with other people, and they've all agreed that this is what they should do. Uh, the attackers are usually young. They are dangerous. Uh, and, and, and when they're going f- by a group think, 
they're not really thinking as human beings. And oftentimes, they don't care about the victims. Uh, they, they, they'll even applaud your assault. And so look, look at Antifa. I mean, those guys are ridiculous, crazy people uh, going out there and, and committing all kinds of weird uh, violence out in public uh, because of their political standing. That, that's just completely brainstem thinking. It blows my mind. So, you know, the attackers anonymously uh, 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 have a lot of uh, animosity towards their victims. And, and so they choose them basically at random. And it can be relatively uh, 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 an opportunity that just happens. And it just happens. And that person happens to fit the category. And then they go after them. Then there's this defensive uh, type of, of hate crime. And these attackers see themselves as defending their turf, their neighborhood, their workplace, their religion, or their country. And sort of like the thrill seekers, the defenders show little or no, no remorse for their attacks and believe that most, if not all, of society supports them but is too afraid to act. And so they honestly believe that what they're doing has some sort of communal uh, 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 agreement by other people all over the country. So they believe they're, they're, they're fighting for the people who are too afraid to stand up for themselves. And so this is a thrill seeker who believes they have justification and then after they – not a thrill seeker but a defensive hate crime. And these people have a tendency to, to uh, not understand – that their crime is uh, not by majority of agreement, and it's by a vast minority of agreement. Then there's the retaliatory uh, uh, hate crimes, and these often are seen as revenge, whether in response to personal slights or other hate crimes or terrorism. So they, they uh, call themselves basically the Avengers, and they often act alone. They often target members of racial, ethnic, religious groups who they believe committed the original crime. And even if the victims had done had nothing to do with it, they care only about revenge and they will travel to the victim's territory to enact it. And so these eye for an eye attacks uh, 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 usually take place after terrorism. So, uh, you know, a bitter backlash that often targets, especially since 9-11, Muslim Americans. So after the 9-11 attacks, hate crimes against Arabs and Muslims rose by 1,600%. A similar spike occurred after the Paris attacks in 2015. So occasionally, the members of the retaliatory type of hate crimes, uh, uh, people of the same religion or racial group, target each other. And so that's sometimes called infighting, where they fight in their group Two people that have differences. There's also these other folks that are on the on the spectrum, and those these are called mission offenders, and, and they're the deadliest and the rarest types of hate crimes that are committed. They are committed by people who consider themselves crusaders, often for a, a racial or a religious cause, and their mission is total war against members of a rival race or religion, and they often are linked to groups that share their racist views. So mission offenders write lengthy manifestos explaining their visits, uh, the, their, their websites uh, steeped in hate. Usually there's violent imagery. There's travel to target symbolically significant sites where uh, uh, you know carnage may have happened. 
And these offenders believe that the system is rigged against them, which means that they can justify excessive violence against innocents. And so that is an unbelievable thing, but these hate crimes can look a lot like terrorism. And, and so they, these mission offenses often overlap many of the definitions. So in the case of like a Muslim man who killed 49 people at a gay nightclub in Orlando uh, a couple of years ago, uh, that that massacre was an act of terror and an act of hate, according to Barack Obama. But according to the FBI, that was a mission offender. Okay, so let's try to wrap our heads around this and try to understand. When people face a crisis, they often revert to an unfortunate human tendency to protect their own while finding a scapegoat to blame the problem on. Yes, we as people hate to take accountability. The vast majority of the population of the world will deflect responsibility. Absolutely. And this causes enormous amount of chaos in all kinds of people's lives. Because to face truths, people have a really hard time with that. And to take responsibility, it takes a lot of maturity and wisdom to be able to own that. And when you know what truth is, you have a better shot at maintaining it and, and understanding it before making your life too complicated. Um, so, when people face crisis, once again, they revert to, to that tendency to, to find a scapegoat. So, their propensities uh, basically emerge full-blown in the days following, like, the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks in New York and the Pentagon. Arab Americans, who had previously blended into society, suddenly became targets of suspicion, prey to verbal bullying, email harassment, lootings, uh, at their stores, and even murder. So Arab students, fearing their safety, fled the United States and and basically went back to where they, they lived. And, and we're in a mode where we feel like we have to protect ourselves, where we feel that everyone who is clearly not us needs to be, and that's in quotes, scrutinized. And so, you know, uh, altruism and the origins and prevention of ethno-political conflict there's a lot of controversy, but when people are victimized as individuals or as a group, it creates a really diminished sense of self, a view of the world, that the world is a very dangerous place. So most Americans would never overtly act on the feelings of mistrust that may have developed since September 11th, but a small portion of these Americans uh, have participated in, in, in events, uh, uh, name-hurling, uh, full-blown hate crimes. Um, you know, there was a chic gas station owner in Arizona that was killed. Uh, there's uh, other people uh, that have been tried to be run over from Pakistan. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. But it's hard to say how many of these incidents have occurred nationwide. But, uh, you know, the FBI has been invas uh, investigating about 90 alleged hate crimes and hundreds of other incidents that have been reported. And, and so social and clinical psychologists who study the phenomenon of hate crimes it, it, make important distinctions between people who commit hate crimes and those who may experience this uh, suspicion uh, uh, in lesser ways. So understanding what the difference is between how a person handles the sense of being in the in group and the other sense of what is the out group 
uh, people behave differently. Some people repress it. Some people don't recognize it. Some people fully recognize it and project it. Some people just avoid people uh, like the Arabs. They may avoid the Arabs instead of dealing with them. And so it's an interesting thing how uh, we all begin to do in steps or, or in various uh, levels, people have a sense of prejudice or a sense of uh, needing, uh, having a hatred towards a group or a specific group. And so, you know, those who commit hate crimes are, are not always mentally ill in the traditional sense. They're, they're not always a diagnosable schizophrenic or a manic depressive um, what they do share is, is a high level of aggression and antisocial behavior. And so an antisocial personality would be the diagnosis. And that is a personality disorder that doesn't have medication. But, but they're, they're oftentimes they're not psychotic, but they're consistently very troubled, very disturbed, very problematic people in our community. And they pose a huge risk for violence. You know, uh, usually their childhood histories uh, show really high levels of, of parental or caretaker abuse and the use of violence to solve family problems. So people who commit biased crimes are also more likely to deliberate and plan on their attacks than those who commit more spontaneous types of crimes. So these guys are just a little bit more pragmatic. All right, come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about hate crimes and understanding them, how, what direction they come from, and then we're going to talk the ingredients that make them up. Come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Mental illness affects more people than you might think. Now there's a program that showcases support resources, how many people in our society view mental illness, and how the culture surrounding it is changing. Listen for We Are Hope with co-founder and host Sean Perry. Mental health is being seen as a public health crisis, and we want to help, support, and listen. You'll hear the discussions and conversations that need to happen. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? 
The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about hate crimes and the psychopaths that live among us. And boy, you know, once again, this political climate we're in in the United States and even in England and parts of Europe, there's a lot of division. There's a lot of division among people as far as, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the idea of a more green global economy. And uh, the other has to do with jobs and and uh, trying to maintain an economy that can sustain the amount of people that live in a country. So it's it's pretty amazing that everybody has their views on what to do and uh, and how to change. And so that sense of anger, that sense of deliberation causes people to attack each other from a political perspective where they want to get their way. And so they target people. And uh, we did a show earlier on microaggression. Microaggression uh, with people that commit hate crimes is really macroaggression. And it's crazy stuff. And you know what? Many of these people that commit hate crimes do communicate their uh, ideas of what they would like to do. And uh, so, you know, that's a really strong indicator when they start talking about it to their closest friends or people. Uh, That's something you got to take note of. You know, uh, September 11th, uh, when that happened, basically it turned the world upside down and it certainly turned the United States upside down because that incident in particular woke everybody up to how powerful terrorism and hate can be and how pervasive it can affect so many people's lives. And this whole country, in watching that event, uh, lived out of fear. A lot of people would not go to a football game or not go to any place where people congregate simply because they could be targeted. And so our sense of freedom got compromised in September 11th, and many people have been scarred by that, and the affect of that has had a long-lasting effect on shaping people's opinions. So people are a lot more serious about safety. People are a lot more serious about the idea of being uh, uh, the police not doing enough for them uh, because there is a deep insecurity in our society that we have to end up taking care of ourselves. And that is where the division of the gun laws comes from, too, which is pretty amazing. You know, when you meet a person who's a member of an out group, and an out group, once again, is a group you do not accept, you're, you're less likely to individuate them, to pay attention to their characteristics, that when you meet members of your in-group, that you know what those characteristics are. And that's because stereotypes concerning out-group members are much stronger than those of in-group members. So people are, are, are more willing to ignore individuating information about members of out-groups, lumping them all into a single dislike category, and then reacting to that label as such. And so the less you know about a group, the stronger the effect will be, which is uh, certainly the case in in any kind of crisis. You know, uh, when people don't know uh, much about a group, they're very likely to ascribe to them the notion of cultural essence, a sort of, mm, what is it, a, a, a temperament that they really erroneously believe defines the entire culture. You know, like with, with Arabs, it, 
totally obvious example, th- that essence may even be seen as militant and extremist. So, so the thinking is you can take away a tiger stripes, but it's still a tiger. And so that's basically how people have oftentimes labeled from the minority of a population and projected it on the majority. And so people, when they only have experiences with television, they really don't understand culture and they don't understand that how to debase their own uh, uh, value system and their own uh, uh, outgroup projections. And the less outgroups you have in your life, the more peaceful your life's going to become. And that doesn't mean you're not aware of when you're in danger, but the, the deal is, is that you have to understand that having people be t- treated as outgroup members when they don't even know what you're thinking and they don't even know where you're coming from is just pure ignorance. And so, you know, the more experience we have interacting with people of various cultures, the better off we're going to become in treating them as human beings and the less fear we're going to have in our lives. You know, uh, uh, the sort of brush off is what many uh, African or excuse me, Arab Americans will experience from Americans since uh, September 11th. There has been some healing, which is good. And there's been a sense of more awareness in certain communities. But the fact is, is that there needs to be a drastic change in how we view people, especially from that particular trauma. You know, let's uh, look to more extreme responses, you know, and, and and some research has debunked the long-standing uh, sacred cow that hate crimes literature that economic factors predict hate crime levels. Uh, there's a number of studies in, in racial hotspots, including Los Angeles and the South, and in major statistical uh, reanalysis of famous 1940 study by uh, uh, Carl Hovland and uh, Robert Sears showing a relationship between cotton prices and lynching. But the team has found that this relationship simply doesn't hold up. So uh, we have to turn the biases around. There's a lot of people have thought long and hard about how to um, uh, get rid of prejudice and bias crimes that have flared. And so the one way to look at it is to apply our own values, which is inclusion, the right of free speech, our understanding of people as people. And, and, you know, this country has been willing to accept people from all over the world. And that's how we got built into the country we are. We're, we, we are made up of people all over the world. And this was the free place to come. And so our basic start of our country uh, has everything to do with how we should be functioning today. And that's not with prejudice. You know, uh, we've got a lot of teachable moments out there that, that are in effect out there in the news on a daily basis. And that tells us there's a lot of work in society that needs to be done to suppress that kind of violence. You know, at some point, most of us will live through a bad event, a terrifying event. It could be a car accident. It could be a natural disaster. It could be a a medical emergency, a, a fire, or perhaps trauma inflicted by another person in the form of assault, abuse, combat, robbery. So trauma can also come from seeing another person be hurt or be killed and learning about something awful that happened to a person that we love. 
You know, whatever the source, trauma leaves its imprint on the brain. And so research studies consistently show that post-traumatic stress disorder is, is linked to greater availability activity in the brain areas that process fear and less activations in the prefrontal cortex. That means we lose our intelligence. We lose our buffer. Our human wisdom goes away or, or depreciates. And our brainstem thinking, the reptile in us, becomes forward. So this whole uh, uh, country, this whole world is, is raising its traumatic effect, its post-traumatic effect on various incidents that have taken place. And so people are thinking less and reacting more. And so uh, that's getting back to our more primal who we are. And so naturally, we're going to have primal crimes. You know, uh, there's a lot of people that re-experience the trauma. They replay the memory. Many people find that that the mind turns over and over, ruminates in an upsetting manner, almost like a loop. And it might feel like the brain is trying to make sense of the experience or figure out if we should have responded differently. Whatever the cause, it can be extremely distressing to relive a nightmarish experience repeatedly. But we tend to ruminate over things we cannot control. So we try to figure out how to control things we cannot control in the future. Also, people have nightmares with actual uh, experience probably felt like a nightmare. And it's common for real nightmares to haunt our dreams in the aftermath of trauma. Also, flashbacks occur when the trauma memory gets cued and makes it feel as if trauma is happening all over again. So what happens to this person who's traumatized, especially people that witness people being shot, people that have been shot, killed, blown up, all the, if they've survived, guess what they have to also get through? Not only do they have to heal on the inside from their body, but they have to heal, excuse me, they have to heal emotionally because and that trauma, it, it just continues to go through their mind. And so, you know, the big emotional reactions, that means their brain is starting to train itself to be reactive and primal. So, let's look at emotional reactions of people that get traumatized. There's usually fear and anxiety. Uh, most emotional reaction, most common one uh, to trauma is feeling fear or anxiety. And it makes perfect sense. And then there's anger. And that's uh, in addition to fear and anxiety because anger is a very common reaction to trauma. We might feel anger at the person or the situation responsible for the trauma. We may get angry at ourselves if we blame ourselves for what happened. Or we might just be more irritable than usual and have a hard time understanding why we're snapping at our partners, less patient with our kids. You know, there's sadness that takes effect with these folks. And, and how can this not affect someone's work? I mean, that... Also, if they do, you know, they they have a family or they have to survive by working, this stuff affects them. That sadness, we often feel sad and cry after a highly traumatic event. And the crying can be a way of nervous system to, to come down from the fight or flight response since crying is associated with uh, parasympathetic, or parasympathetic nervous system, which calms the mind and the body. So crying can actually be therapeutic. Also, guilt you know, is another thing that people feel. And if the trauma involves someone close to us being injured or killed, we may start blaming ourselves, thinking that we didn't somehow prevent it. And then we feel numb. You know, sometimes rather than feeling strong emotions, we just shut down as though we're made of wood. And we might not have the positive emotions, uh, you know, that we should when good things happen to our lives. So that numbing response can come from the body and the mind's self-protective efforts to face overwhelming 
overwhelming emotions. And then other people will uh, avoid uh, situations related to the trauma, trying not to think about the event. You know, so the triac event is not a pleasant memory, so it makes sense that we would want to avoid thinking about it. So maybe going to Walmart or going to a game or all of that stuff may have a lot less joy than it used to if, if you've been targeted. You know, if let's say if you're you're homosexual or if you're, you're you know, whatever from a different culture and, and you're coming amongst a culture that you, that's traumatized you, you're going to have a real hard time not being traumatized everywhere you go and not feeling a sense of, of scared and a sense of fear. Uh, oftentimes, people avoid things related to the event. They avoid people, places, things related to the trauma because they trigger a real painful memory. So we might avoid certain TV shows that remind us of the event. We might avoid things because they feel dangerous, like a, a part of a city, uh, difficulty trusting people, and believing the world is an extremely dangerous place. That is the most common thing uh, that happens. Uh, also, people think they should have handled the trauma differently, so they'll reevaluate, reevaluate. That's why we do uh, a group. If you can get a group of people together after a traumatic event and let them reprocess the event, basically they start because you get tunnel vision when you're in these crazy events, these hate crimes tunnel vision about how to survive so you lose the whole big picture and as they talk about the big picture as they talk about their experiences the big picture starts to come together and that eases people's sense of trauma and prevents post-traumatic stress disorder for many folks and that's during uh, that anxiety phase uh, acute anxiety phase which is the first 30 days so seeing yourself as weak and inadequate that's another characteristic can you imagine walking around your life after an incident and profoundly beginning to see yourself after you were, may have been confident, happy, uh, felt safe, and now we feel weak and inadequate. And that's because some jerk does something to us. You know, criticizing yourself for reactions to trauma, that's a big thing. And, and then we have this hyperactive nervous system. And this is like feeling constantly on guard, seeing danger everywhere, being easily startled, uh, difficulty sleeping, loss of interest in sex. So, you know, if you've been through a trauma, you may have many or a few of these experiences. But this is what, folks, when we see trauma on television, we are traumatized. When we see things that should never should happen, happen we get traumatized. It's not just the people that are there. It's the people that are actually seeing you. If you see it on TV, that's pretty crappy. And now that people have YouTube, they'll watch in great detail and then traumatize themselves. You know, these reactions I was talking about, most people find that they gradually subside over a period of days, months, years. But if you find that you're struggling to recover from your trauma, you should seek somebody that's a professional and that has very highly effective treatments of post-traumatic stress disorder. I personally do a lot of this type of counseling, and EMDR is a, a eye movement desensitization reprocessing. You can Google that. That is a wonderful uh, technique to be able to help people reprocess an event and move it into their memory glands. So now what we're going to do is we're going to begin uh, to define what a psychopath is, and we're going to break them out. You know, the first thing, you know, there's big traits, there's about 20 of them, that assess to a psychopath. And uh, basically, they are, these people are glib and superficial, charm, 
They have glib, superficial charm, so they seem like a nice person. They're grandiose. They're exaggerated, high estimation of who they are. Uh, they need a lot of stimulation. They uh, have are pathological liars. Uh, they're usually very cunning, manipulative, uh, and once again, I'm just going through what identifies them. They are, are uh, lack remorse or guilt. Oftentimes, uh, they have a shallow affect, which is a, basically a superficial emotional responsiveness. So they're fake emotionally. Uh, they're usually very uh, callous and, and uh, lack empathy. Their parasitic lifestyle. Uh, which means they have uh, poor behavioral controls. They have a lot of uh, sexual promiscuity with lots of different people. They have really, usually childhood behavior problems come into life and then they come into their adult life. Many of them lack uh, realistic long-term goals. So they're kind of floaters. Um, they, they oftentimes are impulsive uh, they're Im and they're uh, irresponsible. Uh, they usually have a failure to accept responsibility for their own actions. Uh, they usually have many short-term relationships. Uh, they had a lot of juvenile delinquency. That's usually a common factor. And now, that doesn't mean a psychopath might just have some of this. I'm not saying that this is everything. That This is just a big conglomerate of symptoms that these folks carry or indicators that many of these folks can carry. Uh, usually, they have uh, 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 criminal uh, versatility. That means they've committed various crimes. So now, what is a sociopath? Well, we're going to talk about that when we come back. So come back, and we'll move on into this. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about hate crimes and uh, the psychopaths among us. I'm going to differentiate because it's really hard for many people to understand what the difference is between a psychopath and a sociopath. But, you know, it's really simple if you think about it. You know, the psychopath has a moral identity problem. They don't have a real strong moral identity they, they or their identity is distorted. And the biggest problem with a sociopath is they have a self-identity problem. That means they don't really know who they are. They're kind of float. You know, uh, so people that recognize themselves as a, or at least people that recognize sociopaths understand that they have many of the same ingredients as a, uh, as a psychopath. However, uh, their trajectory is more about uh, understanding their own self-identity rather than their moral identity. So a psychopath will project their moral identity and uh, a, a sociopath will project their self-identity because they don't have one on themselves, so they project it on other people. You know, once again, a sociopath, just like a psychopath, has charm and pretty good intelligence. Um, they usually have the absence of delusions or other signs of irrational thinking, uh, absence of nervousness or neurotic, you know, manifestations. But they're generally very unreliable. Uh, they're generally untruthful, like a psychopath, and they're insincere. And they oftentimes uh, lack remorse, shame. The inadequately uh, are motivated by antisocial behavior. Uh, they have really poor judgment, failure to learn by experience, and, and usually pathologically, uh, they're egocentric and incapable of love. And general poverty in, in, of their uh, emotions is is usually there. They, they usually sociopaths have very uh, little insight. They're unresponsive in general to interpersonal relations, and, and so they're, they're uh, um, fantastic, uninviting behavior is oftentimes with alcohol, and there's oftentimes uh, um, suicide th uh, threats with a sociopath that are rarely carried out. So that means they're, they're more about getting attention, and their, their sex life is usually impersonal, trivial, uh, and the failure to follow any life plans. So these kinds, both psychopaths and sociopaths are loners. So let's break out, because the psychopath is the one that's more likely the one that's going to commit a hate crime. You know, uh, truth makes psychopaths harder to spot in a crowd. That's the truth. And, uh, you know, they're, they're usually not the crazy-eyed person in the black trench coat walking around uh, on an abandoned street, but you know they're about one percent of our population, and they may may not even sound uh, like a lot, but but it means that one out of every hundred people you know is a psychopath. So or, that means that there is a bombs everywhere, everywhere, 
And that can include your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, maybe even your favorite, uh, uh, somebody on your social media. Perhaps there's a, one sitting next to you. You know, to make things worse, the percentage doubles or even quadruples when we talk about people in high power positions like business leaders, lawyers, and surgeons. With all these psychopaths running around, how do you spot one? Well, after all, the quicker you can identify a psychopath, around you, the less likely you are to become their victim. So fortunately, psychologists uh, have been conducting a lot of psychopathic uh, research of traits for many years. And although the theories may uh, vary from various researchers, they possess the traits often exhibited by uh, these this uh, hate crime behavior and these ethical violations. So what is Machiavellianism? That's a common feature. People in Machiavellianism are duplicious, they're cunning, they're manipulative, they place a higher priority than most on power, money, and winning. They, they, they really disregard moral and social rules as a result, and they, so they lie to other people, manipulate them with little to no guilt. Um, so that's kind of how that operates. For people high in that, that Machiavellian trait, manipulating others is an impulse, like an alcoholic impulse to drink. And sometimes the manipulation is done to achieve personal gain, like to get a promotion, but other times it's just done for fun because they can't stop themselves. Uh, so depending on the type of person, these people's tools of the trade is deception, guilt, bullying, feigned weakness, or flattery. Whatever they choose, they regularly wield those type of things and attempt to twist people's emotions and behaviors of those around them. And those people are usually master manipulators, are often very charming and well-liked, at least from a superficial level. But they... They usually feign interest and compassion for a short time, but then that wears off pretty fast and it becomes clear that they only really care about themselves. Um, you know, there's a, a movie, uh, I think uh, th this uh, Gone Girl, that movie, that's it, that's what it was, Gone Girl. And uh, th I, this is a spoiler alert, by the way. It goes, she goes to extreme lengths to victimize the men in her life, even if their only sin was not giving her the attention she thought she deserved. So her particular tools of manipulation is sex, lies, guilt, fame, and uh, her well-crafted diary. So even readers get duped uh, by that character's lies. And it isn't uh, until midway through uh, that we see her for what she really is, which is a master manipulator. The other feature that many psychopaths have commonly is a lack of conscious or empathy. So, you know, that little voice in your head that tells you to, to return a, a wallet or treat others you want to be treated, people high in psychopathy don't have a voice at all. Its volume is off. As a result, they lack many of the social emotions that other people take for granted, including guilt, remorse, sympathy, and pity. And it's this lack of conscious that enables psychopaths to engage in behaviors uh, others than what they may secretly fantasize about, but they never actually do. When someone hurts us or makes us mad, they may think, I want to punch him or I could kill him, but we never actually do it. But psychopaths don't have that brake pedal. If they want to do it, they may actually do it. 
And so this hints at another quality associated with psychopathy, which is low impulse control. Uh, people high in psychopathy can be quick to violence and aggression, and they may have uh, casual sex partners. They tend to engage in more risky, dangerous behaviors than others. And, and usually uh, their mantra is act first and think later. And so this, this hints at another quality associated with psychopathy. Um, once again, you know, if you look at this uh, character in Gone Girl, that character is cold and calculating. She's almost reptilian in her lack of compassion. So she seems to lack any sense of right or wrong or empathy for what she puts others through. Instead, she is calculating, pragmatic, uh, whether lying to the police or getting rid of uh, a human obstacle. Through her actions and lack of emotions, you may see that character as a beauty who lacks even a hint of warmth or humanity under the surface. They also have a strong sense of narcissism. People with uh, narcissism are basically self-centered. They have an inflated sense of their qualities and achievements and any flaws they may have. They, refu they refuse to see in themselves and instead they project them onto others around them. So, for example, narcissists who secretly worries that they aren't smart enough will accuse the, them around uh, people, other people around them as being dumb to boost their ego. And they also love compliments and lavish praise anyone who admires or affirms them. So the flip side of the coin means that they are extremely sensitive to insults and often respond to criticism uh, with seething rage and retribution. And they, they have... Uh, basically an unstable self-esteem and because of their self-focus they don't get along well with others and so they're pretty easy to identify they have problems of sustaining their health satisfying relationships they, they tend to seek positions of authority where they can uh, work over rather than beside people because they want control of everything and that control that authority helps because narcissists never blame themselves for the problem and it always is someone else's fault so many times if if it's in a team or if it's in a, a job situation they have a tendency not to see the forest for the woods and eventually they uh, lose their job or get moved and buried somewhere within a, a bureau bureaucracy there's a lot of examples of narcissists in in literature but uh, you know there's some that you could point to, like uh, Annie Wilkes in Misery. If you think of that that movie or the book Misery, uh, Annie doesn't immediately come off as arrogant or boastful, although you know uh, she always claims herself to be the number one fan of Paul Sheldon. But you know, as we see the story unfolds, we're subjected to her constant complaining about the world and those in it. And those rants demonstrate that she does see herself as superior. So everyone else is a lying old dirty bird. And anyone who falls in this category is not worthy of sympathy or even basic human dignity. And so that, that character in Misery is a really good example of a psychopath. So generally, they're uncaring. And so they're, 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 they show a lack of empathy. So that means if someone's hurt. Uh, they may not say, I'm sorry, you're hurting. That that looks horrible or it looks like, you know, there's something I could do for you. They're just generally cold hearted and they, they're dissocial. And that means that they uh, they have a really callous unconcern for the feelings of other people. And so, uh, you know, they have a, a biological oftentimes grounding uh, for uncaring nature. And that is because uh, they may have emotion experienced, uh, as, uh, experienced a sense of that in their childhood from one of their parents 
or both. They also, emotional disgust plays an important role in their ethical sense. And so they find certain uh, unethical actions disgusting and that, that uh, keeps them from engaging and, and makes, us, makes them feel uh, expressed disapproval of those things. So they have extremely high thresholds for disgust. That is a big feature. They also, uh, uh, some research lately has, uh, they have a, uh, has shown that they have kind of a default mode network. And so basically it involves a cluster of several different arenas of the brain. And so the first studies that have come out recently have been done on the function of psychopaths. And as expected, they have, uh, have a real uh, connectivity problem in their brain. That means they have a, uh, uh, an attachment problem. They don't attach well to anyone. They also have very shallow emotions. Psychopaths uh, and to a degree sociopaths uh, have a lack of emotion, especially social emotions such as shame, guilt, embarrassment. Uh, you know, they basically have a general uh, problem in major effective uh, reactions. They have a very small emotional vocabulary. They lack remorse and shame. That's a big thing. They're very shallow. In this, so that means they, they fake their emotions many times. They uh, show a lack of guilt. And they are notoriously uh, have a lack of fear. And so when other people are put into experimental situations they, they, where they anticipate something painful will happen, such as a mild electric shock or a mildly aversive pressure applied to a limb, uh, their brain, normal people, their brain activates. But with psychopaths, they actually uh, get excited about stuff like that because they want to prove that they can do it, they can get through it. So they love to prove themselves uh, by their actions. And so they think that everybody just looks up to them. They're also very responsible. Uh, they, they, uh, they blame others for, for things that are actually their own fault. And they even uh, admit blame when forced into a corner, but the admissions are usually not accompanied by a sense of shame or remorse uh, or the desire to change. They have very insincere speech. That is a big one. And they are overconfident. They narrow. They have a very narrow attention span towards people. So they don't like process. They want outcomes. And they're selfish. And they they really don't plan well for the future. And violence by them is. Uh, they had a very low tolerance to frustration and a low threshold for a discharge of aggression. So they are impulsive when it comes to violence. So now. You have some ingredients of what a psychopath looks like. That's our show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. DRGBMFT at SBCGlobal.net or our webpage on VoiceAmerica.com, the empowerment channel, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now remember, Fifty Shades of Grey is romantic because he's a billionaire. If he lived in a trailer, he'd be a sociopath. Instead of saying hate... You might just say that you're not excited about someone's existence. And sometimes karma takes too long, so you might just want to beat the crap out of somebody. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. 
Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 